This is Jessica Fritz-Aguire. About a year ago, Josh Mankiewicz followed me on Twitter. If you know anything about me, you know this was a pretty big deal. Mank, as they call him, has been a staple on the hit NBC show Dateline since 1995, reporting on some of the most disturbing, mind-boggling, and haunting true crime stories from all corners of the U.S. In addition to being well-known for his jazzy ties and pocket squares, Mank is loved for his wry approach to storytelling. A 2018 BuzzFeed article once described his voice as, quote, a drool purr or a growl if you're in shackles and he's not buying what you're selling. Here's actor Bill Hader doing his Mankiewicz impression on Jimmy Kimmel Live. The other people on it I love is Josh Mankiewicz. Oh, wow. Like, Josh Mankiewicz is the best because he kind of has, he kind of has a, like a stuffy nose. He, <laughs> he always goes, he's always in Aruba. It's like the guy killed someone in, in Cabo St. Lucas, that's mine. Like he always gets the best. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he goes, uh, he always says, you could have a drinking game with this every time he'll go, he'll do this. He goes, so you found a dead, now most people when they find a dead body in their house, they call 911. <laughs> but you didn't do that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Mank has a storied family history. His father was Robert Kennedy's press secretary. His great uncle, the director of classic films like All About Eve and Cleopatra. His grandfather was none other than the screenwriter of Citizen Kane and the man behind the Wizard of Oz's so-called Kansas sequence, behind the idea to shoot Dorothy's farm life in black and white while Oz would burst off the screen in Technicolor. But when Josh Mankiewicz followed me on Twitter, I wasn't thinking about the pocket squares or the purr growl or Robert F. Kennedy or Citizen Kane. I was thinking about Doreen Vincent, namely how to lodge Doreen's story in Mankiewicz's mind. So I messaged him, and he responded. I nudged him a bit more, and he kept responding. He was interested enough or maybe I was just enough of a pain in the ass, that he finally asked, can I call you? And that's how I first spoke to Josh Mankiewicz about Doreen, for an epic 20 minutes that I recorded and have stored among my interviews on my phone with the title, Josh Motherfucking Mankiewicz. We chatted, and he told me to keep him updated on the case. So I did. And when Mark Vincent was arrested this February, I messaged Josh again and took a deep breath. Would I be able, I asked, to interview you for my podcast? And to my surprise, Mank said yes, and the rest is Sticky Beak history. A big thank you to our sponsors, JPEX Financial and probate attorney Nia Srodosky. JPEX is a female-owned and operated financial services company. Jamie and Carol can help you plan for all phases of life, from homing in on retirement to planning for your children's education. Whatever the milestone may be, they'll be there to serve you. Please visit their website, www.jpexfinancial.com, or call 860-430-5397 to speak with Carol or Jamie and take care of your financial future. And make sure your estate is in order with Nia Swardowski a probate attorney who did mine and Joe's estate planning, something we've been putting off for years. Nia is excellent at her job and gave us peace of mind for our future. Please call 
860-966-9968 or visit ncsestateprobatelaw.com. So without further ado, may I present my interview with Josh Mankiewicz of NBC's Dateline. I told Dateline, I sent them some of the stuff you sent me this week, and I think it's really <laughs> unlikely that we would do it before it's solved or an arrest is made. But if an arrest is made, then that could very easily be something that we would do. Okay. Um, but you'd be the main character in it, basically. Because I have no the, problem with that. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, we'd have to try to find her other family members or somebody that knew her, which would be hard because it was a long time ago, and that, that person would have... Actually, no. So I'm in touch with her mother. She's got um, two aunts and an uncle on her maternal side. And no. then on her father's side, he has four siblings that are also in touch with me and very supportive. And then her stepmother's family as well. So I do have a whole community of people that knew her. All right. Well, so that would all that would all be that would all definitely come in handy. But I mean, like they'd have to be there'd have to be some end to this. Right. It wouldn't have right. to necessarily be, you know, a trial and conviction and an appeal that gets denied. And, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have to be all of that, but it might be an arrest. That might be the kind of thing. And, you know, okay. we, um, one of the problems, I think, I, I think we talked about this before. <clears throat> one of the problems with us doing the Doreen story is that there weren't a lot of other suspects, right? The only one that there was was there was a serial killer in the area that would be really easy to chalk it up to. And he took credit for kind of like, um, what is it, O'Toole and Otis? Is that their names? Right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Took credit for a lot of stuff in the area, but there's nothing specific that can be pinned down to that man. And I think you would also and have it turned to out, And it turned out they were lying <laughs> about a lot of the stuff they took credit for. Right. Which is, it's always, it's never going to cease to amaze me that people mm -hmm. take credit for something they didn't do. But he has never actually, this guy, Haddon Clark, he's never taken responsibility for Doreen specifically. He's just talked about Connecticut in the 80s. And so I think the police went down that road for a long time because it was an easy one to go down. Okay. And you'd have so to that, ignore... Again, that might be <clears throat> go ahead. I have to ignore what? Well, you'd just have to ignore a mountain of circumstantial evidence that suggests it's, you know, who I think it is. Well, knows? we wouldn't necessarily be ignoring it, but we might not lay it out in the first 10 minutes, you know, okay. if we were doing this. I okay. Mean, we're, I mean, we, we're we're married to the truth in all of these stories. I mean, we're not going to mm -hmm. say, you know, we can't say somebody was a suspect, you know, if they weren't a suspect. And we can't say somebody's a killer if they haven't been convicted of killing someone. Of course. And that kind of thing. But, you know, if somebody was a suspect, if the police looked at them for some period of time, more than, a, you know, a minute or so, mm -hmm. um, if they were the focus of any part of the investigation, then that definitely sort of allows us to talk about that. Uh, and we do, even though, you know, later we're going to say, and then it turned out they arrested this guy. Right. And, you know, if we did it at, at an arrest, we're going to say, and then, you know, by the way, here's what he claims. And maybe we try and interview him. Yeah, I think the main problem that we're working with in the case I'm handling is that I was actually just listening to your Helene Krasinski cold case mm -hmm. broadcast. Mm -hmm. And sort of like in the Kristen Smart case, the police were very behind the eight ball because mm -hmm. they bought the dad's story in the beginning that she was a runaway and they didn't look into it for more than a year afterwards. And then once they busted Mark with unlawful possession of a gun in 1998. Which was pretty recent, right? Well, so the same thing happened in 1989 when they were looking for her. They found him unlawfully possessing a gun, and he was arrested and served a very short stint. What was unlawful about him possessing a gun? 
he's a felon like multiple times over mm -hmm. so he's um, not supposed to own any yeah so right and so this time what happened was they finally started investigating him they went to discuss it with him up in vermont where he'd gone and he took off he stole his son's gun and then his son is dropped a dime and they found him with the gun again so that's what he's in jail for now with his first hearing slated for about a week from now and you'll be at that it's remote and so i got myself credentialed as a press member and so i can i can watch it remote yeah Okay. Okay. Anyway, so you were saying, uh, I, I kind of interrupted you. You were talking about, uh, you wanted to talk more about how we select stories. Yeah. You know, what really struck me that I never thought about before was watching the thing about Pam. Sorry to bring up the Keith case, but see, teasing, Great seeing story. Kathy, it is a wonderful story. See, and I actually watched it with my husband and he kept looking at me and saying, this isn't real. This isn't real. I said, no, the whole thing is real and it's i thought real. she she did such a wonderful job too i thought so it. I, I thought it was great you know here's the thing i <laughs> i'd seen it every time it aired and i knew the story pretty much you know even though it wasn't mine and i wasn't expecting to be interested in the tv program but i really was i i thought it was great yeah they did it very well and i thought the yeah. casting was top notch too but seeing kathy in the gallery of the court throughout you know the mm -hmm. earlier trials it struck me that you know i, I guess you're sending producers right to scope out trials ahead of producers time. and associate producers <laughs> yeah i mean usually usually by the time a producer or associate producer is sitting in a courtroom listening to a trial i would say 80 percent of the time we've already decided to go ahead and do that mm -hmm that story, or we're at least pursuing it. Now, sometimes we go and listen to trials just to see, you know, because there's some kind of like tipping point that we're trying to figure out whether there is enough of a story there that points away from the from the obvious suspect. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've said this before, maybe, maybe to you, but when the <laughs> obvious suspect ends up being the guilty party, you know, Bill and Mary have a happy marriage and then she doesn't show up for work one day and then Bill's found covered in blood and he doesn't have an alibi and he says he blacked out. Well, if it is Bill, that's a pretty tough story to tell on Dateline because, I mean, it's extremely straightforward. And if he's arrested within the first couple of days, that's that's pretty tough. If it turns out, of course, that it's not Bill, then that's a whole other story. And that's the ones that, the, you know, the, the, that we want to do because there's some arc to it and because you can you can do some storytelling, which is sort of what makes Dateline Dateline. I mean, otherwise, it's just a police blotter. We're reading to you who got killed and who got arrested. And it's a little more than that. And of course, there's a lot of other issues that come up in every story. I mean, domestic violence, family violence, relationship violence, you know, dating violence, intimate partner violence. Some of that's in the background of nearly every hour we do somewhere, you know. Okay. So sometimes it's that, and sometimes Dateline is an example of the criminal justice system working perfectly, and sometimes it's an example of the criminal justice system working definitely imperfectly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that, that's not always for the same person. I mean, sometimes it's the cop part of it working perfectly, but the prosecutor part not, or it's they're working perfectly, but the defense isn't. So it's uh, not all of that has to be true, but something has, some of that has to be true for us mm -hmm. to want to do it, as opposed to... <clears throat> Person one killed person two and then got arrested for it and then got charged and got tried and there were no other suspects. That's a that's a pretty tough story to tell. Well, and I think, too, this whole rash of cold cases that have come out have been they, they lend to that arc. Right. Because it's an unsolved mystery for so long and there's so mm. much to tell. And what happened in the interim between, say, the commission of the crime and the solving it or, you know, you did um, Amy Mohalovic recently mm. and new evidence came out. I mean, I right. I, right? Yeah. Or. Chris Lambert does your own backyard about Kristen right. Smart. Right. Well, there has been at Dateline over the years, there's definitely been an antipathy to doing stories that were thought of as old, which you have to use like black and white footage or something mm -hmm. like that. And 
I like stories like that because they, I love seeing like, you know, this person who was interviewed on television back in 1971, you see some grainy interview and they have some terrible haircut, you know, and then you see them now and it turns out either they're the guy or they figured out something that they didn't know then and they're able to tell you who the guy is. I love all that. And I love the idea of parents and family members and police sort of getting older through the story as time goes by. And then then an old case is solved with modern technology, which is increasingly happening. So I think that stories like Helene Przinsky and Amy Mihaljevic and the one we did, um, you know, more recently, um, my most recent story in Texas called After the Dance, Mm -hmm. uh, which was also a a very old cold case, Carl Walker, solved by... um, modern DNA, which, Mm -hmm. you know, had two effects. One is it identified the guilty guy. And second, it let this other guy off the hook who sort of had been, you know, thought of as having got away with it for a long time in the minds of a lot of people, even though he was never charged or named as a suspect. So I think all of that has made it easier to cover older cases. At one time, I mean, I've been here 27 years. I mean, at one time, one of our bosses at NBC sort of told us not too uh, ambiguously, like he didn't really want to see any black and white movies. <clears throat> you know, he didn't want to see any of that stuff. He didn't want this to look like the History Channel. He wanted, you know, Dateline to be able to things that were happening right now, or okay. if not right now, at least pretty recently. Yeah, and that's been really striking because when I met the family, when we first started interviewing Doreen's mother and her sisters, who were very, very young, because Doreen was born to a very young mother. You know, I met these women in their 60s, right? Their late 50s, 60s, and then just got this boxes of pictures where they're young and beautiful and vibrant. And it's it's so interesting to see like how their lives have taken a certain course since this happened, right? Some of them have moved on with it a lot easier than others have, and it's just... Very interesting to see. That's one thing we talk about a lot is what I always call the ripple effect of murder. Because it's, I mean, yeah, I get it. Parents, siblings, children of murder victims, there isn't any such thing as closure. And they're not expected to, like, you know, move on, which is a thing that people, you know, when when people say to murder victims' families, you know, I, I, you know, I, at least they have closure. Like, like there isn't any such thing mm-hmm. that, that doesn't happen. And some people are able to go to move on with, with their lives, as you say, which is good. But usually that's reflected a sort of desire of outsiders to see families get better. And they say, well, now they have closure. Like, it's going to be okay because that mm-hmm. person was arrested. Well, that generally does not even the scales. But the ripple effect is usually like it, it, it falls on people who frequently didn't even know the victim. You know, mm-hmm. like your sister's killed, and then years later, your kid is now 18 and says, can I go to the prom? Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, you can't go to the prom. Mm-hmm. And I can't really talk about why. That's what I'm talking about is like that. And then there's this and then there's this break between you and your daughter. Your daughter's like, like, what the hell? Everybody else is going to the prom. What are you telling me? Right. You know, and you like got struck I'm, by lightning, right? It's a right, one time yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, like I of course I'm going to the prom. Now I'm gonna tell you I'm not going to the prom, but I'm gonna go, I'm gonna lie about it. <laughs> yeah. And while I'm there, I'm gonna take drugs because the hell <laughs> with you mom for trying to hold me back. And all of a sudden there's all this other stuff that is sort of traceable back to a murder that didn't didn't even occur during that young girl's lifetime. And that's that is something else you see in doing these stories. So I think there is less of an antipathy to doing old stories that are solved in the modern era, in part because sort of modern forensic technology, you know, is so sort of not just in vogue in law enforcement, but it's something that's kind of understood by the public, thanks to all those TV dramas that make it seem like any crime can be solved in about 
25 mm-hmm. minutes and you've got a machine on your desk that'll analyze the DNA. Right. The DNA comes uh, back right away. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think there is some some value that mm-hmm. it makes us. Uh, it's definitely encouraged us to do stories. I mean, there's a the, the, the we otherwise might not have done. There's a story I'm doing right now, which isn't done, but I'll give you the bare bones, which is that there's a guy who was looked at very hard as a suspect in a murder. And he knew the victim and he drove the right kind of truck and he was at the right part of town at the right time. And he told a story about where he was that was frankly laughable. And the cops were thinking, this is good. You, you're Easy. you're the guy and we're all going to go home early for dinner. And then 50 years ago, that guy went into prison and never came out. Mm-hmm. And now they did some lab tests to what they thought was going to be routinely disprove the silly farcical story that this guy was telling. And it turned out he was telling the truth. And and all of a sudden the, the cops realized, no, is it not him? It can't be him. And we had to start looking elsewhere. And then that did eventually lead them to the right person. But it's, Was uh, that based on DNA? Was that a DNA it analysis? On, that... It was based on DNA. It was based on other. No, it wasn't. Actually, that wasn't DNA. That was different forensic techniques, which I'm not talking about because this is going to air on Dateline in the fall. Mm-hmm. But but it is a case in which modern modern crime fighting absolutely kept a guy out of, out of the mm-hmm. lockup. Yeah, because that's the main story with Doreen's cases. It's 1988, right? There's no body. There's uh, no crime scene because the police bought the father's story that she was a runaway. I guess they did look at the supposed crime scene a year later, and there was broken glass in the window that had apparently been broken while the father and the daughter were arguing. But that's really it. I don't know how much of a crime scene analysis they did, but there's no DNA later that's going to button it up. And there's no crime scene. There's nothing forensic, obviously. There's no cell phone. There's no credit cards. There's no surveillance. Is there? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's all of those are kind of the backbones of, you know, modern forensic crime fighting. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason to believe that her remains will ever be found? You know, I've spoken to the police about that recently, and I had higher hopes because it could either be at the house where she went missing from when the mother showed up to pick her up that weekend. He was laying cement. It was a rental house that he was laying a cement patio there, which to me seems almost like a bad movie, like, right, a big neon sign pointing right there. The present owners won't do a consent search, and the police don't want to bother them. They think it would and be like efficient. They, they don't even want to go in with like ground penetrating radar that doesn't involve digging up the patio. Uh-uh. No. It's a very strange relationship between the the man and the woman who rented the family this farmhouse in 1988. And it's only been sold in private sales since then, but it's only been or, or along the way, but it's been sold once to this family now who's a family friend. So there's like, you know, I can't see the house. I can't see inside the house on, say, Zillow or anything like that. The cops are extremely protective of this couple who lives there now, which, I mean, I understand that, right? I wouldn't want to live in a so-called murder house. But I've tried to talk to the family that lives there now, as has Doreen's family. And they, I mean, we've been screamed at, driven off the property, so. Interesting. And then the other spot where it could be, Mark was seen in his truck, I mean, as identified, taking something out of his truck bed in the middle of the woods as it, like, at around twilight soon after she died. And the description from the park ranger is that he was taking it out with his arms outstretched in front of him, like he was cradling a carpet or a kid. And the park ranger, so this is a very strange story, yelled to him, assuming that he was throwing garbage away. And the person 
fled the scene into the woods and the ranger did not follow him, but stayed there. And the cop said it was almost like he was obsessed with the vehicle. He took down everything about the truck, which had very distinguishable characteristics. And that was in 88 when she disappeared. And no no question that was his truck. Right, because when the police came in 89 to the park to say, has anyone seen anything strange? Because the park is right where the father grew up, right? It's like the, Mm. the background to his house. And the park ranger said, actually, yeah, there was something weird. About a year ago, there was a guy, and he tells the story and describes the truck with, again, like where the dents were, and there's a homemade toolbox in the back. But that park is something like a 1,000 square acres, and there's an idea as to where it could be, but at this point, it's kind of a fool's errand. The only other thing is Mark was in the park. I don't remember when his father died, but he was there with his siblings to spread his father's ashes, and he walked away from the group and was gone for quite a while, just walked into the woods. So, you know, I'm thinking around there, but the cops seemed to be very reticent to do anything about that because, you know, it would be a lot of work. And I know that they have done, they've taken dogs out there, but they don't think ground penetrating radar will work because out here it's very rocky. So we're kind of up against, you know, have you, have you seen cases like that before where there's no really direct evidence And it's all circumstantial? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've done them before. It's it's definitely so much of criminal investigation involves stuff that the body tells you. Mm -hmm. They find her buried on property that somebody owned or was living in at the time. You know, that's persuasive. But if they don't, the victim of any crime is found somewhere. Right. Where no one particularly holds sway over that, that piece of ground. That becomes tougher. And if that person is never found... Like, then you can really only surmise that because they didn't call their family, didn't call their friends, didn't show up at school or their job or wherever, and didn't use their credit cards or their cell phone or anything, that they're no longer alive. Mm -hmm. But that's a guess. Defense attorneys in court say, you can't promise me, you can't guarantee me that Jessica is not going to come walking down the aisle of the courthouse right now. Right, right. The truth is, you don't know where she is. Well, that's really interesting because she's been a runaway since 1988, and then I brought it to the Freedom of Information Commission, wrangling with the cops over their file, and it was in February 2020, right before COVID hit, that they announced that um, she was declared a homicide victim. Do you know what it was that sort of got them over the bar from uh, runaway to homicide? No. The timing works with the pressure that I was putting on them, but as far as evidence, I don't know anything because the farmhouse is extremely rural and she would have had to, and she had just moved there, right? 12 years old. There's no sidewalks. There's nothing like that. She would have had to walk like two and a half miles in the dark in a place she didn't know and then disappeared forever. So circumstantially, it seems like something happened to her, but no, they never, there was no as far as I know, turning point that brought them to that conclusion. But they just one day reclassified it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say based on new evidence or based on new testimony or... Well, you know, I hate to on, be a... Cons- based on 300 phone calls from Jessica. From I mean, me. Well, yeah. And I think because the, the reason that they were keeping the file away from me is under the exception for okay. pending legal or law enforcement action. And when I first spoke to the police, literally the first thing they said to me was, there's nothing else on this case. We even looked on the internet and there's nothing else. Wow. And I thought, I thought to myself, oh, you looked on the internet and you well, didn't see anything. That's, that's, that's about as far as you can go these days. Right. And then yeah. the other 
the other thing Hoover would be doing if he were well yeah exactly and that's I think that's been the frustration another thing that was told to me is we've given every rookie on the force a run through the file and nobody's ever been able to prove anything you're at the end of the road I think the deputy at one point told me if you kick over some silly little stones that solves the whole thing then maybe we'll look at it and I'm thinking okay well I'm gonna go kick over some stones now right but but isn't that your job I mean well, right. And so the, the struggle Officer. is... And also, like, if you're only giving this to the rookies, that's how it doesn't get solved. When you start giving it to the, the 30-year homicide veteran, that's when things do get solved. Well, and so, like, it sat for about a year before a detective picked it up in 89 and said, okay, something is, has to come of this, right? There's something different about it. There's something bad about it. And then the same thing now, but it was only because... I really pushed them. So when they denied me the entire file or a non-redacted file, the, the word was there's a pending law enforcement action. And I said, okay, well, you just told me six months ago, there's nothing on this case and it's been cold forever. And, and so I hate to say this because I don't want to malign them and I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but all of a sudden there was a law enforcement action in this homicide investigation when I was looking at the file. Maybe they only reclassified it as a homicide to keep you away from it. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels. And it's difficult, too, because we're in such a weird time period. At that FOIA hearing in February 2020, the testifying officer said, we hope to apply for an arrest warrant soon. Okay. And so I said, okay, what's soon? He said, I don't know, soon. And I said, that could be six months. That could be a year. That could be two years. And he said, uh, uh, like a year, maybe. So in the press, it was reported that they said there was going to be an arrest warrant within a year. Not an application, maybe, whatever. And then, of course, COVID hits, right? And everything slows down. And everything. Well, they told me they couldn't do certain things. They couldn't talk to people. I don't, it's very unclear, but they, they keep me in the dark until I'm not in the dark. But they definitely kind of keep me at arm's length. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've done a couple of stories. <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned Chris Lambert earlier in which the podcasters have been tremendous aids to law enforcement. And I've covered some that law enforcement at least treated as if they were nuisances. And I think there were some in which clearly were nuisances. The Cecil Hotel comes to mind mm -hmm, as a mm -hmm. case in which people on the internet not only did not help, but they did a lot of harm. But I'm sort of surprised in this case that the that, uh, police are not encouraging you because you know they don't seem to either want to do anything about it or able to do anything about it. You're perfectly happy to send anything you generate their way it's mm -hmm. not like you're not like you're going to go out and shoot whoever it is if you find a suspect right, right you know and it feels like everything you've done could could only help them well and for a while we were working really cooperatively with you know again i was being held at arm's length the uh chief of police since then has left and there's a new chief who is younger um and when my husband and i went in to meet with them recently and very engaged, very intellectually curious, asking a lot of questions, which is something I really haven't seen from them before. Again, not to malign them, but in the course of having done this, they just really haven't seemed very interested recently. And that's another one of the things I wanted to ask you about, this sexual abuse surrounding what likely happened to her and why it likely happened. They've told me before that sexual abuse is a different part and the statute has run and that's not what they're considering and it's a different crime. To which I say, I know that there's no burden to prove a motive, but if you're going to tell a jury a story, right, the story has to make sense. You can't just say no. he killed her because. Juries like motives. Oh, I would think so. Yeah, prosecutors aren't required to prove motive, but they generally try and do that. 
Right. But they've also disdained it because I don't think there's much of an appetite to look into sexual abuse in that department. There's a case from the 80s that there's still a lot of um, mm-hmm. contention over because a little girl was being molested and she died or she was murdered. And they kind of put a cap on that way too early, I think. And I think the wrong person might have been blamed. And I know that the cops now in modern times are upset with they don't like the reputation that they've earned from the 80s cop work, it, it, including this. When was when was the when was during the last scene? Uh, June 15th, 1988 is the date on paper, but I have a lot of information and just from doing the research and talking to people that it was more likely that she went missing on June 12th, which is my 10th birthday, which is why it struck me that I never knew this story. Right. So strange. And Um, you grew up, you grew up right around there. uh, Next town over. And then I got married there and I went to school there and I lived there in the beginning of my married life. That's why all this struck you. This isn't, Doreen, Doreen Vincent is not a name you grew up hearing the way people in Ohio know everything about the Amy Mahalovic case. No, not at all. And there were a lot of things happening in the 80s, like people I knew, a girl I knew personally, a classmate of mine was murdered when I was nine. And then there was a random little girl murdered during a street fair by a mental patient in the next town over when I was about 10. Right. And I think that's, I mean, everybody has the reason for liking your show the way that they do. And for this influx of true crime, but I think it seemed like chaos, right? It seemed like, okay, Jess, you're nine, 10 years old and people are getting murdered. Little girls are getting murdered and there's no rhyme or reason because one was a mental patient who just happened to pick this little girl out. And then the other one, the one I went to school with, her father had a schizophrenic break. And there was, you know, it's like you can't trust anybody. So when my husband and I learned this little girl's name by a colleague, you know, who brought it to us and did some work on it before, we said, oh, we have to know her, right? We grew up in that area. We lived in Wallingford. She's our exact age. She's almost my husband's exact age, right? That's been the rub is that no one knows this story. I mean, even now people are starting to listen to the podcast in Wallingford and they say, I had no idea that this story existed. It's like a dirty little secret almost, you know? You you never, it wasn't in the paper. It wasn't on TV. You never heard the name Doreen Vincent growing up. You know, it wasn't, I have been able to find, there are a few articles, but it's all cast in the father's and the stepmother's narrative, which is that she ran away. They didn't let the mother make a police report because they said at the time they didn't want conflicting police reports that might confuse future officers or detectives. So the mother's voice wasn't heard, including the sexual molestation of her sisters, the suspicions that had happened to Doreen, too. And the story was that she ran away to be a child sex worker and that she was like working down in, you know, Bridgeport or Stanford. But there's never been any sighting or anything like that. Uh, The story was that she ran away to be a child sex worker. In other words, that was her plan when she ran away was to become a prostitute? Was that she got sold into sexual slavery in some way. But the other thing is, I brought this up to you before, the father admits to having taken photos of her in her underwear. And not only was she showing a lot of signs of sexual abuse, but one of them was going to school. I think in she was in seventh grade when she disappeared. So I think she went to about seven schools in seven years. Because wherever she was, she'd be there a short time, even a few months. And then he'd bump her to another school. But at her last school, she was telling her classmates, I'm a model. And they, oh, you know, that's so glamorous. What kind of model? Well, I'm an underwear model. You know, I go on shoots and I have an agent and I go to New York City all the time. And I've been doing it since I was six. And it's not a big deal, all this stuff. And so the police's line on that was, that's bullshit. 
she wasn't ever a child model. That's she was lying to people. But they also know that he but was taking another, photos of her in her underwear. Right, but there's another whole way of looking at that, which is that's how her abuser urged her to see herself. Correct. Right. You're a model. Exactly. And I also think, you know, I've been a little girl before where you, it's like you want to say something, but you don't want to say the truth. So you sort of get there in a way and, you know, hope to God that someone says, what's the truth or something? Because, you know, she was a kid. So I think that if that was happening, maybe to her, it was, you know, glamorous or especially if he sold it that way. Yeah. And you either he sold it that way or you just think to yourself, how can I describe what's happening to me in a way that flatters me instead of a way that I feel ashamed of? Exactly. Exactly. Right. But then he was also doing things like, and this is why I say the mountain of circumstantial evidence is ridiculous because like they arrived at the house and he burned her diary in the, you know, arrived at the house. uh, It's Mark and his new wife, Sharon. They had two little kids and Doreen. And, you know, I, I heard it from the stepmother said it. He admitted it. The stepmother's dead, by the way. The neighbors knew about it. And the landlord knew about it. But he burned her diary in the driveway. Did he say anything about why he was doing that? I don't have anything from him saying why he was doing that. But the stepmother said at one point, there was nothing incriminating about him. It was just typical teenage girl stuff. But if you had seen what was in there about him, you would have been really, like, you would have burned it too. So. The story gets messed up a little bit. And there's no, can't cross-examine the stepmother because she's gone. She's dead. So So by inaction over all these years, police are are sort of allowing the potential pool of witnesses or or contacts of Doreen to kind of dry up. Mm -hmm. Are, Are you in contact with anybody that she told the model story to? Oh, yeah. A few girls. Yeah. From her old school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're in their mid 40s now. And it's amazing how they when they contacted me, they said, oh, my God, I was just thinking about her the other day. I have this visceral memory of her telling us this story because it was so unbelievable to them then. And when the police came to speak with them, they told the police and the police said to them, that's ridiculous. Nothing like that happened. So. The other way they've been sort of keeping the file out of my hands is by saying that if it's in the public for public consumption, that people who may have been involved and I and I do think I do think some trafficking may have been involved. I think there may have been some other and I do have some names that I could think of and reasons to think of them. But you think you think what do you, what do you, mean? you said explain more about that. You think trafficking could have been involved how? Um, there are a few men that I've interviewed who were around Mark whose stories don't match up or the way that they speak about Doreen is very strange. Mark was very, he was a born again Christian, as he continues to be, you know, in name only, and dressed her extremely conservatively, right? Like gunny sacks, like beige gunny stacks of dresses. And the landlord said to me, you know, I only saw her a few times. And I'm thinking, well, she had just moved in five days before. How did you see her a few times? And he's talking about how She's beautiful and spooky, and she looks like uh, Lydia in Beetlejuice, and she always Mm -hmm. wore black. And it's just, you know, and I can't point the finger and say anything because that's, you know, that's me making a conjecture. But it's a very strange way to talk about a little girl. This guy also said he doesn't remember Mark. He doesn't even remember his name. He couldn't remember him at all. And then he went on to be extremely specific in details about her father, details about the stepmother, details about the children. And there's reason to believe that their relationship was much more, it was much deeper and more involved. Hmm. 
So you think there's a chance that other men may have had sex with her? Yes, her, I do. Her, 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 you think her father may have made her available to other men? I do, because in the small part of the police statement that I have, the very first thing that he says on the beginning page that I have is he's asking for the pictures back that they confiscated. And he says, they say, you know, we're not giving the, those pictures back. You can't have them back. And he says, that's the only thing I have of her. I gave the rest of my pictures out. And in the beginning, I thought, well, that's kind of crappy for a dad, right? His daughter's missing. He gave out pictures. But then I learned that the pictures he was asking for back were underwear photos. And he gave the rest out. So who's he giving them to? It's also strange because his alibi was that he was in this barn across the way, which functioned as a workshop. And that's why he wasn't in the house. And he didn't see her run away. And then almost as soon as she disappeared, they tore that barn down. And I said to the landlord, or I guess his wife, why would you just tear a barn down like that? And she said, oh, it's just something that you wouldn't have wanted to have on your property. And the, the timing just strikes me as strange. Well, there's a lot to unpack. There's no question about that. There's but a lot to unpack. Yeah, but you got to get to the end of the road. That's the problem for, for us, at least. Have you talked to, you know, when I, when I was listening to Helene Przinsky today, I got kind of jealous because I felt like her friend who stayed fighting the good fight for 40 years, the police were ready and willing to take her information. Whereas I, I am kind of a nuisance and that's why it's called sticky beak, which means like pain in the ass. But it just strikes, like, I don't understand why they wouldn't want to layer their file on top of mine to fill in the blanks. I don't know why. I don't mean, you know, the sheriff's department in Colorado, like they were, they were definitely interested in learning more about Mm -hmm. the case. And they didn't really care where that came from. And then they would check everything out. But I, I don't understand the uh, antipathy to, to having somebody else do some work. Well, in the very beginning, because since I've taken this on, I've there have been about five different detectives assigned for no rhyme or reason, just because somebody leaves or somebody gets promoted and somebody else takes it over. But one of the very first detectives I was working with on it I found out that his brother was Mark's boss at this teen challenge place, this Christian addiction center. And I said to him, your brother is Mark's boss. Did you, is like, is that something we should discuss? And he said, no, that's none of your business. That's my family. And it's, you know, it has nothing to do with the case. And I'm thinking, well, the murder case you're trying to solve and this, this addiction center, right? It's not like it's not like it's this fully functional it's a hole in the wall in new haven it's like just it's a hole in the wall it's very it's not well funded or anything the idea that the head detective's brother could be mark's boss just was such a coincidence that it didn't sit right with me and then once i pointed that out they cut communication off with me for quite a while and that was the only thing that changed was he historically hooked up with the police department in some other way? Not that I know of. You know, he's really made himself the enemy of the police for years because he's he's an arsonist. He's a burglar. He assaults people, you know. And he's done but, time. I mean, so he definitely is not some darling of law enforcement. He's not. And actually, when I started this project, I spoke to his sister. And the very first thing she said was, have you, have you talked to the Bethel police where they grew up? Because she's like, they've been trying to get him for years. I don't think Wallingford has that kind of relationship with him because he was new in the area when he arrived with Doreen. And then a few months later, he had fled to California and was in the wind for like more than a year. So they dislike him because of what they suspect him of doing. But he's it's not like personal to them. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, 
you're going to have to let me know what happens on this. Well, I brought, I, mean, I, I brought this will. for you. Yeah, I brought what is this that? For you. Oh, yeah, this there my, you go. Thank my you. Bowl. Yes, yeah. isn't that lovely? Very nice. Isn't that lovely? The sisters were like, we have this beautifully engraved, you know, crystal vase for you, and I'm crying. And then they say, oh, when Brad got you, their other brother got you this gag gift. We don't know what's in it. And I open it up, you know, we're in this beautiful restaurant, and I open it up, and we're just like, oh, like, I can't even. But it sits on my desk. It sits. Hey. A reminder hey, every a, day yeah i think it's a badge of honor so good for you it is well i really appreciate you taking the time and sure. i will keep you posted if you want to call the wallingford police department on my behalf in the meantime then i welcome i mean if we do this we definitely are going to want to talk with them or one of the yeah. things i ask them is like why they're not a little more cooperative with you but that you know that's not the story the story is what are they doing where is she where are they you know how hard are they working on it and why haven't they worked harder on it Mm-hmm. And you know, there's no guarantee that they're going to talk with us. I mean, I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a couple of podcasts right now about missing people. In some cases, some of the people we're talking about may or may not have been victims of crime. Some may have left on their own and then become a victim of a crime later on. Some clearly were victims of crimes. Uh, and in a couple of cases, police departments they're just like, yeah, we're we're not talking. We got nothing to say about that because. You- do you think that's no. because they want to avoid bad press or is that yeah. more like, okay. no, I think they don't want to, I think they don't, I mean, in some cases they don't want to answer a question of this happened in X year and it's now 2021. Can you explain why you haven't done anything? Mm-hmm. You know, why did it take you so long? And I'm working on another case where, you know, it took forever to, to go from missing persons case to, to homicide, you know, what changed? And the answer is there was a documentary. In, in the case that I'm doing. In this case, maybe it's because there was a, a podcast. Do you do you get a lot of reaction to the podcast? People talk to you about it? I mean, like, I, you know, in the, in the grocery store or wherever. Um, I haven't had that, like, well, I have had a couple fangirl moments where people hear my voice or they see me in another true crime group and they're, oh, I listen. But it hasn't, I think within the community that I have built up, it's extremely, you know, well-liked and people get really invested, but it hasn't like taken off to the point because that's always been my thing. If I can't find her body and I can't stick someone in jail for it or be responsible for that, then her story needs to be told because you're right. Nobody knew it before. And I just don't, I don't think that's fair. You're not coming to CrimeCon, are you? No, I wish I were. I mean, there's still time, I guess, right? There's still time. (laughs) Are you wearing a mask on the plane? On the plane, sure. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm less worried about the plane than I am about the airport. And then, of course, you know, in Las Vegas, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's you know? wearing. And it's, it's the four of you. Do you go with Lester too? I don't think Lester's doing nightly news. I don't think we're gonna. Have, I think it's just okay. the four of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, that'll be really fun. I mean, it's you do it every year, right? I, I could be that. wrong. I could be wrong about that. Lester could be coming, but I have not heard that he's coming. Because I. I, I, I think, in brushing up for this, I did read that you're the mayor of CrimeCon. Is that correct? That's some crazed term that somebody gave me like four years ago, which I, I'm definitely ready to uh, abdicate that throne, I think, okay. to someone else. But uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I am. Uh, supposedly, that, that's, that's not my. That's not. It's not like, you know, Michael Jackson called himself the king of pop. Uh, but yeah. that, the mayor of CrimeCon was given to me by others, not, okay. not my, my, my okay. title. Yeah. But yeah, it's fun. I mean, I think they say that because I engage with the audience on Twitter to probably a greater extent than the other people on Dateline. And, uh, and, you know, the audience likes that. And I did at CrimeCon too. It was nice to meet a lot of the people that were there and people that I, you know, had only 
you know, read about or, or knew from social media or had only seen on the television or podcast or something. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think it would be a great opportunity because I, I need to learn stuff. Right. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people like that when I could get them, when I could speak to them and, you know, yeah. planning ideas in my head and stuff I never would have thought about has been really helpful. So yeah, no, you, 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 you should think about going this year. Think about going. Right. I mean, you know, if not, there'll be, you know, there'll be next year, but you know, this thing's only going to get bigger. I think, I mean, it's okay. gotten bigger every year. I mean, I went, I went several years ago in Indianapolis and I was the only one that went and I gave a speech to this group. I, I couldn't believe how many people showed up mm -hmm. and I went back to LA and I called my boss in New York and said, we all got to go to this thing next year. This is like, this is the audience. They're all mm -hmm. together. And then the next year we did go and and it was even bigger. And then we went to, I think, New Orleans the year after that, and it was even bigger. And then COVID happened, and they, I think they, they got knocked off their game a little bit, but I think mm -hmm. this is going to be pretty big. Yeah. Well, let me go talk to my husband out about leaving the kids behind and take yeah, a trip. Yeah, they'll be Vegas. fine, yeah. I think. They're you fine. Know, yeah, yeah. They're fine. <laughs> just yeah, get them some yeah. helmets. Yeah, just a big bowl of food in the middle of the floor. And, yeah, that's and fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they'll understand, yeah. All right. Well, th I really appreciate this. Thank Thanks. you very nice much. Yes, it's been fun. You too. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Good Bye -bye. luck. Let me know what's going on. I will definitely keep you posted. Okay, cool. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Sticky Beaks. My interview with Josh Mankiewicz is also available on video form. If you go to my Patreon and become a member for $5 or more, that's www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. You can also become a member of the Sticky Beaks group on Facebook, or you can message me directly at justicefordory, that's D-O-R-I, at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your Freedom, little children. Children, I've been chopping and